production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. And welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It is Friday, May 6th, and I'm Rose Feeney, president of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. In 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower established the first Law Day. And since then, Law Day is marked around the nation on May 1st. The Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association is pleased to join with our friends at the City Club to host a forum on this year's Law Day theme, Toward a More Perfect Union, the Constitution in Times of Change. The Constitution is a dynamic document as it not only outlines a blueprint for government, but also delegates power, articulates rights, and offers mechanisms for change. It is also a tool of accountability and commits Americans to the pursuit of equality, justice, and peace. It has withstood some of the most turbulent times in our nation's history, some of which we're experiencing now, and generations have built upon these original words in an attempt to make a more perfect union a reality for all. Yet during these current times of change, our Constitution is once again being put to the test. I am very pleased to introduce our Law Day speaker today, the Honorable Patricia Ann Blackman, former judge of the 8th District Court of Appeals. <laughs> judge Blackman knows what times of change means firsthand she was the first woman of color elected to the Court of Appeals in Ohio and retired in 2021 after 30 years of service. Born in Mississippi, Judge Blackman graduated from Tougaloo College before she was recruited to attend Cleveland Marshall College of Law by the late Judge Ann Aldridge. With Cleveland as her home, Judge Blackman served as the chief prosecutor for the city of Cleveland and was the city's first night prosecutor. Today, we will learn about Judge Blackman's historical career and how she worked to fulfill the promise of the Constitution. Moderating the conversation today is the Honorable Melody J. Stewart, the 161st Justice of the Supreme Court of Ohio. and the first African-American woman elected to the Ohio Supreme Court. Prior to joining the Ohio Supreme Court, Justice Stewart served on the 8th District Court of Appeals. Justice Stewart has more than 30 years of combined administrative, legal, and academic experience. If you have questions for Judge Blackman, you can text them at 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794.
You can also tweet them at the City Club. The City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, it is my privilege to introduce such treasured and respected members of the judiciary. Please join me in welcoming the retired Judge Patricia Ann Blackman and Justice Melody J. Stewart. <laughs> Thank you, Rose. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure for me to be here to do this. So we'll get right to it because we have a brief period of time. So as most of everyone in this audience knows, and Rose just stated, you were born in the segregated South in Mississippi. You were number six of 11 children. Your father left your, your, the family at a young age, when you were a young age. Your mother raised you with the assistance of your older siblings. How did you get to Tougaloo College? Well, that is an interesting question. <laughs> and many of you in this audience may even know the answer to this question. But just in case, I will bore you again. <laughs> when I was in the 10th grade, I was fortunate to go to Lanier High School. And because I was able to go to Lanier, my biology teacher was Grace Sweet. And in order to avoid getting in the weeds, I'll fast forward. <laughs> and she saw me because I could dissect a frog and name all the parts. <laughs> and she was very impressed. Hopefully you're finished with lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and so she saw that I had potential. She knew that I lived in poverty. I lived on the other side of the track. And so she told me about the Upper Bound program at Tougaloo College. And that program was actually started by Richard Nixon. And I went to that program at Tougaloo College. And then I was admitted to Tougaloo. So when did you start thinking about the law? Every day. Really? Well, I'll tell you what my grandfather tells me. I don't really know if this is really true, because you know, a lot of stuff I've forgotten. But when I turned 14, I told my grandfather I was going to be a lawyer. And, when, and this happened because even though we didn't know a whole lot in terms of what was happening in the world, we knew that the Civil Rights Movement was happening. And in 1963, President John F. Kennedy was killed. That destroyed the hopes and dreams of the people in the South because they saw him as a mechanism for change. And by him dying, it just erupted. And I was talking to my older brother about it, and I said, the only way we're going to succeed is for us to be lawyers, for us to be educated and know what is happening so that we can help our people. And, and so I told my grandfather, and I know this is true because my young cousin heard it too. And she actually recently said it in an interview and it inspired her. If she was thinking about being a lawyer, then I should think about being a businesswoman in Chicago, and she did. Wow, that's neat. Um, as with a lot of people, so many people, parents are the first role models. Your mother raised 11 of you, worked, 
Um, but she and your grandfather were primarily your role models coming up. Absolutely. Can you talk a little about your mother? I was eight years old when my mom came home and found out that her husband had left her. And she had, she had just given birth to her 11th child. And I saw her cry, and it affected me a lot. But then I saw her pick herself up the next day and started looking for a job. She had never worked. And she walked the streets of Jackson until she found a job. And she made a commitment that she would never, never separate her children. And so she worked to keep us together. And then my older brother became the head of the house. He was 14 years old. 14. 14. Maybe that's a <coughs> signal, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, then, uh, little did you know, after finishing Tougaloo College, that almost a thousand miles away, up north, there was a professor at a law school at Cleveland Marshall College of Law, Ann Aldridge, who went to her, the dean of her law school in the late 60s and said, you know, this full-time day program is not diverse at all. We need to do something about it. And she did. So then she went, got on a trail and visited uh, historically black colleges in the South. Do you remember the first day you met prof then professor, later judge, Ann Aldridge? Well, that story has been watered down uh, in a lot of ways, and, and maybe this is the best time to clear it up. I did not meet Judge Aldridge until the day I arrived in Cleveland. Oh, wow. Uh, when she came to the to Tougaloo, she met with the president of Tougaloo College. And they had been friends because she was the lawyer for the United Church of Christ that had interviewed uh, Meg uh, Charles Evers to testify in the famous uh, WLBT the case. Brother of Met the, the brother of Megger after Megger was murdered. Mm -hmm. And so um, she was doing, I, I assume she was doing her thing. <laughs> And I was actually interviewed by Dave Forrest. So there were three people in that group that went to those historically black colleges. Bruce Elfin, who, was, who is a lawyer in Cleveland. Many people know him as an employment lawyer. And Dave Forrest. Dave Forrest was uh, the president of the Black, lawyers, black Students Lawyers Association. And so he interviewed me. Okay. He uh, was very impressed. Uh. <coughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> so you applied to Cleveland Marshall, but did you apply to any other law schools? Yes. I, I, I'm very strategic. I don't know where I get, get this from. I, it could be my mom. But I had decided that I was going to apply to three law schools. And they all had a purpose. <laughs> I would apply to Georgetown because my uncle lived in Washington. So I would have a place to stay. I would uh, apply to um, Texas Southern because I knew people in that area. Mm -hmm. And I applied to, well, the Texas Southern came later. I applied to NYU because I just wanted to go to New York. <laughs> and, and then I applied to Cleveland State because they came to the school looking for students. Mm -hmm. 
and that was how that happened. So I think, if memory serves me correctly, you were at least admitted, obviously, to Cleveland Marshall and Texas Southern, but you didn't quite know you were, elect, you were admitted to Texas Southern right. when you were admitted. How did that happen? Well, my mother, who is also very strategic, <laughs> because if you know about the program, the Elkhart program admitted you in the summer so that you could go through a summer program to be at least caught up with the other students and in the day school because we were all part of the day school. And by setting up that process, I think my mom had the idea that you're already in school. Why should I mess with that? So she never told me. <laughs> you got an admission letter that you I never knew about. I received an admission letter, and it was on the refrigerator on the, and I went home, the professor, I called Ann Aldridge the professor. She was never the judge to me. And so the professor gave me a ticket to Mississippi for my birthday in August. So I went home, and I'm looking through all the mail, and I say to my mom, because school was going to start in September. Mm -hmm. So I said, why didn't you tell me? I know all these people in Texas Southern. <laughs> and, and she said, I didn't want you to have to make a difficult decision. There you go. <laughs> Just like a mother. Yeah. Just treat like a mother. <clears throat> so you jumped, on, you jumped on the bus. You came to Cleveland by way of Greyhound. Station probably still looks the same, right? Still. <laughs> um, Except they have phones. They don't have phones, phones. That, phones. Are, that are 10 cents. You got <laughs> off that bus, made a call to Ann Aldridge, yeah. said, I am here. I need a place to stay? Well, no. The dean had actually told me that I was going to either be staying at Liz Moody and Alan Buckman's home or maybe one of Steve Werber. I, I wasn't, I can't remember and just the for details. Reference, Liz Moody and Steve Werber were, were professors professor. at the law school. Yeah. Liz Moody and Ramin yeah. So they treated us like we were foreign exchange students, which <laughs> was true, because we were coming from the South. You're coming from and Mississippi. So, yeah, so we needed a place to stay during the summer. But that was all. It was supposed to just be for the summer so, program. So you came and you with Ann Aldridge and you stayed with her and her family for a brief 13 days, well, 13 months? Uh, it wasn't that long. Actually... You mean that short? <laughs> I mean that short. <laughs> well, it, what's, what's interesting about it is that Bruce Elfin's parents lived next door to the professor okay. on, in Warrington, on Warrington Road in Shaker. And Bruce, I, had, I called Bruce after that first night, and I told him I didn't want to leave because I really enjoyed the house in the professor in her boys <laughs> even though she had made it clear she did not want any students staying with her because she had four Siberian Huskies four sons one nephew visiting and the neighbor's child had moved in I think <laughs> so she she only had one little space left and that was me but stage you did yes for 13 years. Absolutely. Okay. And I helped raise that young man over there, Martin Aldridge, <laughs> who is my brother. Yes, your brother.
also uh, came for a reason, stayed for a season. Um, <laughs> That's what she said. And you, so then you were going to go back to Mississippi. Judge Aldridge convinced you to take the Ohio bar because the reciprocity was better for you. You could then, you were going to go back to Mississippi and help your people, but you took the Ohio bar. Mm -hmm. And then you stayed for another season. You worked as a, uh, you first had a law practice with attorney Almeida Johnson and retired Judge Una Keenan. Mm -hmm. You worked as a chief prosecutor for the city of Cleveland under the Voinovich administration, mm -hmm. the Ohio Turnpike Commission, and then of course the job most salient to today, the Ohio Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? And you had never run for elected office before, right? You Neither had you. <laughs> And look at you now. <laughs> Trial court judges instruct the witness to answer the question. <laughs> you never run for, but you helped other people. But how did you get to the Court of Appeal? What made you decide to run for the Court of Appeals? Well, with me, everything is a long story. <laughs> but I had, I took a leave of absence to work in Mike, Mike White's campaign. And as some people in this room know, George for George Forbes' campaign for mayor. Right, not and Mike White, George No, Forbes. no, I took a leave, I'm sorry. I, I took a leave of absence to work in George, George Forbes', Forbes campaign, mm -hmm. and Mike White won, and Mike White fired me on television, <laughs> which was the best thing that could happen. See, there you and go. He never <laughs> literally fired me. He's, one of his team said, and the first person who is going is going to be the chief prosecutor for the city of Cleveland. And I said, well, that might be me. <laughs> <laughs> and so instead of putting Mike through that pressure, I resigned. Because there were a number of people trying to protest and wanted me to stay. And I, I knew that that was not a good fit. And so my dear friend, Carl Stokes, knew that I was jobless. <laughs> I really wasn't. I worked for the Turnpike. But he said to me, One, you won't believe this. I'm walking on Shaker Square, and he stops me. And he, as he always did, he said, Pat Blackman, you need to run for judge. And he said, there are three judges, three judgeships that are coming to fruition in uh, 1990. He said, and you know, the legislature mm -hmm. actually made this law back in 1976 because the Court of Appeals originally were three judges and then six, and then the legislation moved it to nine, and then eventually 12, and, the tw and that would end the period of the number of judges that were going to be on the Court of Appeals. And so those, nine, those three seats that were open were February 10th, February 11th, and February 12th. And his last parting word to me, Carl Stokes, who was the mayor of the city of Cleveland, and then became a judge, and, and I practiced in front of him. We, we became really close friends. And he said, his last word to me was, pick one and tell everybody <laughs> that you're running. And I picked the 11th because I was born August the 11th. <coughs> so. There's no magic to this. <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> so you picked the February 11th term, you ran for it, you won it, so prior to your retirement, you're the only judge 
to sit in the February 11th term on the Court of Appeals. It's amazing, right? 30 years, the only judge to sit in that seat. It's like you never leave. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Judge Emanuela Groves sits in that seat now, right? Yes, she does. I'm very proud of her. And she's a sorority sister of yours. Yes. Hmm. Delta Sigma Theta. Hmm. So I don't, want people, I don't want people to think that, that seat is just a Delta Sigma Theta seat. But let me ask this question. Let me say this to you. So should that term, you know, on our ballots, and it has FTC full-time term commencing, should we tell the Board of Elections to change that to PBT, Pat Blackman term see, commencing? You, see, I knew that's what she was going to say because I've known her, and I know her sense oh. of humor. Is she, she is magnificent. That's why she's on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Okay, so now let's, we're, since we're getting to close to our time to allow the, the audience to answer questions. During your time on the bench, you authored over 2,000 opinions. Wow. Th that's incredible, right? right? Can you just give us a little, just in brief period of time, how the bench was when you got there and how it was when you left, virtual hearings accepted? When I arrived, the court was pretty settled. There were, I think at the time, eight males and now four, and four females because Ann Dyke and Ann McManaman were there and, and also Blanche Kapansky. So it was, eventually it became five. Uh, and my math is off, so don't hold it against me. <laughs> but in any event, what was different was the majority, I probably shouldn't tell this, the majority of the judges were former trial judges. They were older and, and wiser. And they had a sense of how they thought the court should operate. And I learned from them. I mean, the first time I sat on the bench, I had the honor of sitting with John V. Corrigan in Priatel, two of the most brilliant lawyers and judges, and they were visiting judges. And I was the presiding judge because <laughs> I had seniority over them. Wow. And what was so neat about that was that Judge John, because a number of people were skeptical about it, how dare she run for, she's never been on the trial court, and it was just a lot of little. Me either. <laughs> it was a lot of little stuff going on. And John V. went out and told everyone what a magnificent jurist I was. And I know that, not from him, but from his son, who is a lawyer. Mm. And he told me what his father thought of me that day, that week that we tried cases. He, he, I was prepared. And that, the reason I was prepared was because David Mattia, who was also on the court, he, he mentored me and he also told me how this process worked and that the best fun I was going to have was oral argument. And for those of you, this is senior judge David Mattia. Who's, Not the one whose son is now on the okay, Common yes. Police Court. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. No problem. You, you, are, so now, you are such a Supreme <laughs> Court justice. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Okay. We're okay. almost through this. So, so fast so, forward. Okay, I know, I know. To, I, mean, I can get in the weeds, but I know okay. where I'm going. Okay. <laughs> so now we have the, the majority of the court are females. We have two African-Americans. Now? Now. When you were there? Now. We had two when I was there. And Sarah started. Harper and myself. And Sarah and I were the first African-Americans elected, African-American women elected to the Court of Appeals in the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. But I got bragging rights because I had seniority. Yeah. She, it's kind of like Paul Stokes. She's got 24-hour seniority. Yes, that's <laughs> right. And believe me, that's a great 24 hours because I was able to pick Marilyn Reeves as my secretary, yeah. who was with me for 30 years. Yes, just. <laughs> so back to your question. I don't, want, I don't want to leave that. How was it when I left? And many of the judges are in, probably in this room. Some of them are, they are smarter. They have a better sense of what the law is. They're, they're kind of on par with their law clerks. And if we have law clerks because they're just out of law school and they're the ones who help us get it right so that we're reviewing judges and not trying the case over again. Mm -hmm. and, I, and my clerks help me with that <laughs> about what is the rule of law and what is your role and how can you make this better. And, that, and I think I left a court that was so willing to take on that prestige. And, and many of them, I, I'm not going to call anybody's name because I would get in trouble. But I was so impressed with, when I sat for those last weeks with the number of questions that the judges, I always wanted to sit with certain of the new judges. And I'm, I'm sad that I didn't get a chance to sit with uh, uh, Lisa Forbes. but. I, it's just to know how intelligent they are. And so that's a long yes. No, it's a, it's a good answer. You know, we, we both, one of the things we have in common is that we both um, value the importance of civic education. Absolutely. And in your spare time, you teach a class at Baldwin-Wallace. Is Not at Baldwin Wallace, but it's a part of the it's institute. It's a part of the institute at Baldwin Wallace. Right. Yeah. Can you briefly tell about that class? Oh, now we're getting to briefly. That's because we have about two minutes. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I think I'll, I've been saying briefly all along, but <laughs> you probably have. I can I can't hear out of this side. But so BW has an institute for learning and retirement. And when I moved to Middleburg in around 2006, one of my neighbors was in charge of the curriculum committee. At, and these are retirees who are either teachers, worked at NASA, they are brilliant people. I think even the one woman who used to work here is in that institute. And um, I teach, I used to teach, the court system. I started teaching in 2012. I was with them for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And you were one of my last students, uh, rep pre presenters, presenters, uh, at the uh, institute. We were on Zoom, and I, it was it's a magnificent course. So now I teach mindfulness for seniors. 
I also teach mindfulness for judges with the National Judicial College. My mind is okay right okay. now. Okay. Yeah, I said mindfulness. <laughs> oh. Just in case um, you, you don't quite get that, it is being in the present moment, and you are always in the present moment because you said that you are not judgmental, you are a judge. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before we open it up to questions, I will ask kind of a twofold question for your final answer to us. One, what legacy would, it, would you like us to remember you by? And if you had a magical legal wand that you can instantly change some law or some area of the law, what would it be? Could I answer the last part first? Sure. It's very clear. I would, I would just wave a wand and get rid of Citizen United, mm -hmm. 2010. Dark money. If, if you want to invest in politics, don't be ashamed to say who you are. You know? It's just that simple. Okay. And now, what would you like us all to remember you by so we can tell our children and our grandchildren about Judge Patricia Ann Blackman? That she evolved. That I came so raw. And there were so many people who helped me to be better. When, when, when somebody points out one of my shortcomings, I try to overcome it. I try to get better. Because I don't always decide that they're wrong and I'm right. You have to be reflective in order to be mindful. And if you are not reflective, then you tend to pre pretend that you are something that you're not. And you listen to those things that happen. I call them harassers that are in your brain. The harassers are the ones who lie to you, who tell you things that is not true, that uh, mess with your integrity by, by uh, challenging you to be angry, to be uh, uh, disrespectful. All of that happens because the brain is everything. Mindfulness, everyone. Thank you, <laughs> Judge Blackman. Thank you so much. Uh, we are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club of Cleveland. We are joined today by the Honorable Patricia Ann Blackman, former judge of the 8th District Court of Appeals. The conversation is moderated by the Honorable Melody J. Stewart, Justice of the Supreme Court of Ohio. Thank you both. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or our radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and you can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our staff will try to work it into the program. All right, can we have our first question, please? Hi, my name is Becky Morgan. Thank you both for being here. I skipped law school, so my terminology may not be right, but you'll figure out what I mean. Uh, in looking at the Constitution, I understand there are two primary views. One is the originalist, which is it means exactly what it says and nothing else. And the other one is interpretive or something like that that means 
that the Constitution means a lot more than exactly what it says. Is that a, a philosophy that you're taught in law school? Is that one that conservatives are one way and liberals are the other? Can you explain that dichotomy and how it evolves in a given judge? Is that question for her? <laughs> oh, I'm the moderator. <laughs> Excuse me, but the title is The Constitution in Times of Change. Oh. <laughs> well, let me see if I can if I can unpack it. When, when I took constitutional law in law school, and I'm not sure what they teach now, but when, <laughs> I, when I learned constitutional law, I learned from a master, and that was Judge Ann Aldrich. And she made me believe that the Constitution was subject to Precedent, stare decisis, and that means precedent, and that the rule of law means something, and that you can't willy-nilly change it over and over again. So then you have to know your history. And if you don't know the historical context of why the originalists are now very powerful, and you could look up the Federalist Society and that'll tell you a lot. Uh, or where we are going with this principle. And is it a philosophy? Is it, is it a legal philosophy? It is what it is. When you have a Supreme Court justice saying that in order for you to interpret the Constitution, you can only interpret it through the original context, then that's what we have. However, if you know your history, then you know the original context of the Constitution changed a lot. I was not in it. You were not in it. Native Americans were not in it. Black males were not in it. So if we are talking about the original Constitution, then we're missing a whole lot of people. And if it hadn't been for James Madison, and, and always remember, he was the one who was taking notes. So you have to trust the note taker. <laughs> they didn't have a video machine or a recording. So he, under, he was from Virginia, that's all I will say. <laughs> and so he did understand something though. And he made it clear that the minority should not be at risk by the majority, and that they needed something called the Bill of Rights. And so now originalism and textualism, if I'm making this really hard, I love to do that. <laughs> but that is all about a framework. If you have to make this decision, how are you gonna make it? If you wanna uphold a case like Citizen United, then it becomes originalism and textualism and all of these definitions. I think what Ann Aldrich taught me, and she made me a true believer, that precedent, the rule of law meant something, and that in order for you to change it, you had to follow a process. And I won't get into the weeds on that, but you have to follow a process that has been a historical process in this country. You can't just willy-nilly change things 
just because you want to because you believe in states' rights. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that answers your question. But the boss. Hi, Judge. Lon Cherie Billingsley here. How you doing? <laughs> Wonderful. So speaking of changing the law willy-nilly, have you ever authored an opinion and later on saw how it was applied and cringed or cheered? And can you give us an example? No, I haven't. But I do remember the Lessinger case. The, the burning of the American flag. I think that's her, her, the name of the case. I was the original writer on that case. And the two judges overruled me, because we sit as a three-judge court, and I ended up writing the dissent. So I might have cheered when Justice Moyer wrote the majority and adopted my decision <laughs> that the Constitution gives you the right to that expression. And this is what we're talking about in terms of interpretation. We have always had that concept that America is, 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 is bigger than our flag, but you can't tell people that because the flag is everything. You send men to war, women and men to war, and they fight for something. They fight for a flag. They fight for their country. And the flag becomes a symbol of that fight. So you can't just tell them that it doesn't mean anything. But if you don't talk about it, if we don't educate each other, if we are not willing to sit in the room with somebody who has a different view than you and be able to have a decent conversation about it, then we will never learn. We will never move off of that. So I, I might have cheered that day. <laughs> It's always great when the Superior Court gets things right, isn't it? <laughs> uh, good afternoon, Judge Patricia, and thank you for your amazing judicial service. So over the past decades, the legal industry and legal education have been evolving such that it is very different than it was when you began your legal career. So we have here in the audience today a number of high school students. What advice would you offer them for those who are considering a legal career, for those who may be interested in civic engagement, for those who want to look at our world and figure out ways to make it better? What advice would you offer them as they sit in their high schools today? Okay, I'm gonna get in trouble with this. <clears throat> I know it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I, the best advice I can give you is to get to know yourself. Understand why you do what you do. Just appreciate this little bit of biology. From the age of one to the age of 26, your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. Understand that. So you might want to be into instant gratification and something is telling you to do that. I would say, think about it. That's why we have parents. Our parents tell us the difference between right and wrong so that we make good decisions. That's why we have the brain. The brain is designed to help you make good decisions. If you 
are not using it in that way and you don't understand the biology of why you make decisions or why you have a thought that pops into your head for no reason, then you may act on that and you may not make good decisions. I, I'm not sure why everything worked out for me, but I grew up in such pain. You have it. You don't have the pain that we have. You think you have the pain because, <laughs> you're, because, you're, because of your color and, and you th your age. You think you have pain, but know your history. Know your body, know your mind, know your history, and become good citizens. And I guarantee you, you will make good lawyers, and you will make good decisions, and you won't be, you won't operate instantaneously. And then if you don't believe anything I've just said to you, <laughs> ask yourself why you cannot rent a car. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Good afternoon, Judge. Good afternoon. My question is, speaking of changing things willy-nilly, um, what are your thoughts on changing the law school here at Cleveland State University? Changing the name? The law school of Cleveland oh, State. Mm -hmm. Changing it? I, I, I don't know if we need to change it. But are you talking about changing the name of the law school? Or yes, are you John oh, Marshall. John Marshall, mm -hmm. okay. Well, I'm on that committee. And I have, uh, I have not been shy in terms of my desire. I, but I don't want us to cancel anything. And I, I don't believe that's the appropriate word for us to be having a conversation. These sound bites get us in trouble. But what I would like for us to do is to understand why it's important for that school to change its name. And that, first of all, Dean, it's your prerogative to change the name because look at what happened at Progressive Field. They change names all the time. Nobody get upset over that. <laughs> so I think it's the prerogative of the school. Why, I don't want to make light of why it's important but initially, when I, was, when, when I heard the committee, I came into the committee with, let us know our facts, and then that would be helpful. Because I walked into a building that had Thomas Jefferson on one side, and, uh, but I did pay attention to it. And so understand that some people do get affected by it. And a lot of, and the students have said, have voiced their opinion. So I voted that we changed the name for a lot of reasons. And it was the students that changed me because I was initially not on board to change it because I was like, it's been here all that long. You know, let's just tell the truth about who John Marshall was. I mean, tell the truth about the country. We don't have to be embarrassed about this country. This is the greatest democracy, the oldest democracy. We need to embrace that. We are the people. We have the, the soul to say who our elected officials are. We have a representative democracy. If you don't like the way things are going, then vote. You have a constitutional right to vote. And I know they're trying to make it hard, but look at our ancestors. 
They had to guess how many coins were in a bucket. They had forks pushed up their nose when they walked in to cast a vote. We don't have to be, go overboard on this. It's a simple, it's a simple formula. Get out the vote. Talk to your neighbors. I talk to my neighbors. They don't necessarily agree with me on everything, but I say I don't know if you're a Republican or a Democrat, but I think you should vote. Because the more of us that vote, we keep it alive. And I could tell you a whole lot about this, but I tell you one book you should read if you have not read it. It's These Truths by Jill Lepore. Then you will understand your country and you will save it. Good afternoon. This has been such a wonderful, really a delightful program. So great to see you. It's so uh, good to see you. Um, so I wanted you to comment on the, what appears to be the increasing politicization of the judiciary at all levels, of course, at the federal level, and also at the state level. And you, you just talked about Republicans and Democrats sitting in a room together and how that affects really legitimacy of the court. There's been, um, you know, the, the Congress and the executive have, have been at low, uh, low levels of public opinion for a long time. Now that seems to be percolating into the court. So can you just address that and how in your experience you've dealt with people who do have different judicial philosophies. Maybe that's related to their political party, maybe not, but what your opinion is about what's happening. Well, it is hard what is happening and it's hard to see that it's happening now because 50 years ago it was happening and we got comfortable. We thought everything was okay. And so we stopped doing the work. We stopped learning. And we stopped insisting on better. And, and this is the, I, I don't really know the answer, tell you the truth, but I have an opinion. And my opinion is that when, when people can't see their government, this is a representative democracy. You pick them to go to Washington to make decisions, but you don't see anything happening. And so you start resorting to what you can see, which is the state that you live in. And so we get into this whole notion of the state control and the blue states and the red states. And I say it's the United States of America. And if we don't figure that out, we will be enthralled. And that's what Abraham Lincoln said he, in, in his speech to the Congress in 1862. He said, we must disenthrall ourselves and then we will save our country. And that's what we have to do. If we are enthralled in our little worlds of power and money. And, and unless we start looking at what is beneficial for the United States of America, all people who live here, we won't make it. And I think that, that um, we need a, a, a logical 
appropriate way to deal with immigration? Because you know it's been up and down over the history. If you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat its worst failures. And that's what happens in this country. <laughs> you know, you have to know your history. You have to know why things happen so that you can then say, okay, let's make, let's make an adjustment. It was much worse in 1950, especially for black people living in the South okay. and in the North. It was, and just think about the people who were living in 1930 during the Depression. Great. You know, we really have it somewhat okay. You know, I listened to this psychologist, and she said, she said um, uh, think about the good things that we have. Zippers in one running water. <laughs> Over here. Hi, I'm going to be reading um, a text question that we received. Would love to hear both speakers talk about watching Justice Katanji Brown Jackson be appointed and confirmed to the Supreme Court. Well, I can tell you I cried. And then I tweeted about the crime. <laughs> We have been waiting for this day since we thought it was going to be Custom Baker Motley. We thought it was going to be uh, the senator from uh, Texas. I forget her name now. She was on the Barbara Watergate. Jordan. Barbara Jordan. And then we thought it was going to be and thought it was going to be and then it looked like it was never going to be because unfortunately, African-American women, and I'm not, I, don't, I don't want it to look like I'm talking about labels in a group, but I guess I am. So <laughs> we get, as African-American women, we get merged into women, and we get merged into black males, and then we get lost in the formula. So the thing that people aren't saying is, well, you have a lot of women on the court and you have a black guy, so why are you all upset? <laughs> why do we need a black woman? And there's, there's a wonderful um, intelligent man from Duke University who has come up with a theory about preference falsification. And we don't tell the truth when we talk. And the truth is, we want a black woman's voice in the room. Because if you don't have, if you're not in the room, if you are not at the table, and I actually learned this from the president of Key Bank. He understood that. He said, you have to be at the table in order to enjoy the conversation and for them to hear from you. Because you could have a better perspective. And that's what I was rooting for. Because I need her to look at those, because she's so intelligent. Nobody ever talks about how intelligent she is. They just decide to get messed up in the label. But just think about this black woman and all her brilliance who can look at Clarence Thomas and tell him what the law is. <laughs> Um, I'll just say quickly, uh, just to talk about history, to give a historical perspective. I, of course, was happy and, and very excited um, for the confirmation. 
The disappointment, as Judge Blackman has talked about too, is the fact that for decades there have been African-American women and African-American jurists who have been qualified. As a matter of fact, there was one who even made the short list in the 1970s, Judge Amalia Kirst. That's right. Look her up. She's in the Second District Court of Appeals, brilliant legal mind, was given a short list for President Richard Nixon, but the time wasn't right, so she was passed up. So, so the disappointment was that it took a president saying, this is what I'm going to do. And so because the president said that, it kind of murkied the waters and, and, and made, it, made it to be a distraction. But of course, I am happy. And, and when you talk about historical first for African-American women, and I'll, and I'll just, just, just briefly say for those of you who don't know, standing over to ask a question is Judge Mita Pearson who is the first African-American and only African-American female in the federal court here in Ohio. <laughs> and I remember when she was a law student. So a <laughs> so question from you? Oh, oh there? OK. I, I'm sorry. Do you want back and forth? Good morning. My name is Dolores McCollum. I'd like you to um, speak about, in light of the great leak on Monday or Tuesday, how concerned should we be about the Supreme Court going back and revisiting cases like the Miranda case or cases that said you could marry whoever you wanted to regardless of whichever boxes you checked on the census form? How concerned should we be that they will just spend their time going back, going back, going back and undoing things that we thought were in cement but now look like they're meandering rivers? And how concerned should we be that Judge Katanji Braxton Brown Jackson was accused of making that leak. She's not even at the court yet. I'm sorry, I digress. <laughs> well, what we need to appreciate is the Supreme Court doesn't get an opinion, get a case, unless it comes out of a state. The state is the one who is bringing these cases. When I found out that this was the Mississippi case, it blew my mind because I was like, are there any abortion clinics in Mississippi? <laughs> <laughs> and then my sister corrected me and said, yes, there's one. But I, my whole notion, is, the, the reason I make that point, and I make it in a humorous way, is that it starts at the state level. It's our responsibility to make sure that those kind of cases don't get to the Supreme Court. And if they do, there is a, con the, the only way the Supreme Court gets these cases jurisdictionally, and if I'm wrong, correct me, is there has to be a conflict within the circuit. And if there's no conflict in the circuit, it doesn't go to the Supreme Court unless it's some other issue that gives them first impression or the authority to rule on it. So I say it starts at the state level, and it's our responsibility to vote. And if you don't want these conditions, then we wouldn't have them. Just think back, and I'm a historian. I was a history major, and so I always look at what happened historically. And if you look at what, what we've gone through in this country to build the democracy that we have, I think that's what we are hurting from, is that we built a democracy that we were so proud of, and now it looks like it's going into some place. And I, I, I say all of that to just say that, yes, they might go back and revisit. They, they tend to use this phrase, slippery slope, but they may not want to get on that slippery slope. But the abortion case 
If you look at the history of the number of times that case has been before the Supreme Court, ever since Roe was decided, it has been a case presented to the Supreme Court on Roe. Got to stop you. Pardon? Got to stop you there. Oh, okay. Um, before, and I'm sorry we don't have time for more questions, but before we close out, I'd like to mention that last night at one of the many celebrations of Judge Blackman's time on the bench, Judge um, Dean Lee Fisher of Cleveland Marshall College of Law announced that the law school has established an endowed scholarship called the Judge Ann Aldridge Judge Patricia Ann Blackman Scholarship Fund. <laughs> You've heard about Judge Aldridge. She was not only the first tenured faculty member at Cleveland Marshall, she was the first woman jurist on the federal court here in Ohio. And of course, we know Judge Blackman's first in the Northern District of Ohio. And that, um, and that scholarship is predictionally designed for students who come to Cleveland Marshall through the Legal Careers Opportunity Program, which many of you know about, that look at the complete student and get them an opportunity to go to law school, which many minority students have gone through. So thank you, Dean and the law school for the establishment of that scholarship. Thank you so much, Judge Blackman, Justice Stewart, and my apologies to, I think, Judge Pearson, who you weren't able to get to her <laughs> question, so sorry. Um, I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club, and today we marked Law Day 2022, our annual forum in partnership with our friends at the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. Such a privilege to hear from both of you today. We would like to welcome guests at tables hosted by the Black Women's Political Action Committee, the Cleveland Marshall College of Law, the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association, Friends of Dave Nash, Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, the MC Squared STEM High School, and Team NEO. Thank you all for being with us today. And that brings us to the ends of today's forum. Thank you, Judge Blackman and Stewart again, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club, Cynthia Connolly. My forum is now adjourned. <laughs> got that in there. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.